All right, well, our text tonight is Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 and verses 1 to 4, if you would turn there. And you know what that means? There's no more chapters in this book. We're coming to the end. And just so you've got a little bit of a roadmap about where we're going over the next five weeks, including tonight that we meet, we will finish Daniel chapter 12, Lord willing, in the next three weeks. And we better, because I run out of time and go to Africa. And uh, following that, then we are going to have a two-week section on Revelation 19 and on the return of Christ, because that is such a perfect capstone to the book of Daniel and for us to understand how all of this has been moving that direction. And again, we'll see so much more of that tonight. So that's what's upcoming. Uh, I, I need to also make a correction from last week. I made a math error. I've made a lot of math errors in my life, and I'll probably make more, but because this one has a biblical connection, I need to square that away with you, and that's because we were talking about Revelation chapter 17 and verses 9 to 11, where there in that text, we see the description of the seven mountains, which are described for us as seven kings, and which I described to you, and then, and then I believe it's verse 10 or 11, then says, five of them are, um, well, let's, let's read it, shall we? That's always better than guessing. And um, try to keep from making any further errors. So Revelation 17 and 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The woman is the harlot who is the false religious system. And, there are, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And I mentioned to you that those five, uh, I believe that I, I, the math there was I only gave you four. I said they were Assyria and Babylon and Media Persia and Greece. Well, I missed the first one of the five, which is Egypt. So those five kingdoms that are listed, again, they're, they're speaking about Gentile kingdoms. It could argue, well, what about Israel? But this reference is specifically talking about those, those Gentile forces that are contrary to God. So those five kingdoms are Egypt first, was the first kingdom, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Media Persia, and then Greece. Those are the five that were. The one that is, is, is Rome. And you say, wait a minute, isn't the Antichrist different from Rome? Yes. Keep in mind the context of the book of Revelation, written around uh, somewhere between uh, 90 to 95 AD. So it is during uh, what we would almost call the height of the Roman Empire. And so the one is, is Rome. One is yet to come. That also confirms our assessment of Daniel chapter 2's five kingdoms, which were Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the fifth kingdom of the Antichrist, like Rome of similar material but different. So one is Rome, one is yet to come, the Antichrist. And then you remember that I went on to address with you that the seventh is also an eighth. That is, the Antichrist will die and be resurrected. So he is a seventh and an eighth. And the timing of that, uh, of his death, is not clear. It could well be associated with the transition from the first half of the tribulation to the second half, but we don't know that for absolute certain. We just know that that will be the case, and those with those, that is what those verses reference. So now uh, my math is all good, and four plus one is five. Now we need to uh, practice one little thing here tonight. And I need you all to put your hands up. Raise your hand. Nice and high. Raise your hand. Okay, good. I know you can all do it. All right, you can put them down. We are going to go through, and I know this is no shock, we are going to go through a lot of texts tonight. And I am not going to read those texts because we would never get there. So I'm going to give you the scripture references. And if you're a note taker, and I hope you are, then write them down. And if I say too many too fast, which I know happens sometimes, yes, thank you, then put your hand up 
And I'll go back because I want you to have these to reference. They're really key to understand the flow of this narrative and all these details. So with that, let's go to our text in Daniel 12, 1 to 4. And as we enter this final chapter of Daniel, so also do we enter the final section of the final vision of Daniel. Remember that this final vision began in chapter 10. That's where Daniel actually got the vision was at the beginning of chapter 10. We see his terror through most of chapter 10 and Gabriel's comfort and Gabriel's description of all that's going to go on, the unseen world, some of the battles that go on in the spiritual realm between the demonic angels and the holy angels. And then we started to get into chapter 11 and we had the description of the vision and there were really two main sections of that vision. There was chapter 2 to 35, excuse me, verse 2 to 35, which was the description of Greece. And then there was verses 36 to 45, which is the description of Antichrist. And we'll talk more about those as we move along. So as the previous section focused on Antichrist, that is the one right before us, the end of chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, And again, the section before that on Greece in 11.2 to 35. And all of this tied together to reveal the connected purpose of each successive section. And the overall purpose of this vision and of all of Daniel's vision and of all of Scripture. So there's an interconnectivity here that we must not miss. And I've stated it before, but it, it necessitates repeating. So think about this. The vision explained in Daniel chapter 11, 2 to 35, is of the final kingdom before Rome, which is Greece. And this section had a tremendously precise detail. You remember that I handed out to you this little third sheet chart that had the six kings of the Ptolemies, or Ptolemies if you prefer, which are the kings of Egypt to the south, the kings of the south, and the eight kings of the Seleucids, which is Syria to the north. And how in those verses, particularly verse 5 to 35, because verses 2, 3, and 4 really talk about Alexander the Great, which again, great specificity, And then, my wife has told me I use that word a lot, so I'll try to change it, but be ready, because I've already got it one more time in my notes. So, you know, you you can do like I do to my dad when he tells me the story the second time. Um, And I'll say the same thing he does, you know, don't interrupt me, I like telling the story, I like using the word. So, um, we've talked about all of these details and how incredibly specific and accurate is all of this. And how we see sisters coming into play and daughters being used and marriages that are ongoing and all of that perfectly detailed from a prophetic point of view 400 years or so before it occurred. Of course, there's a timeline here from about 323 to to 164. And in that, just exactly what happened historically. And now we get to look back and see that accuracy. And the point of that Uh, amazing accuracy is to show the astounding nature of prophecy, both the current section on Greece and the following section on Antichrist. Greece historic to us and Antichrist prophetic to us, both prophetic to Daniel. But that specific indication gives us such clarity So that we know that the section following on Antichrist has the same clarity. And this is what we call near and far fulfillment. Then the prophecy of Antichrist in 1136 to 45 with that same accuracy. But again, the point is not Antichrist. The point is Christ. And so also is the point of all of Scripture. The point is to reveal Jesus Christ and the redemptive plan of God. And we've examined the amazing harmony as related to several sections of Scripture per Daniel's prophecy. We've looked at Revelation 13 and 17. We looked at Zechariah 9 through 14. 
We also looked at Matthew 24 and 25. And here, in just these seven chapters, we have incredible connectivity, and Daniel becomes really the hinge pin of all of this. And it becomes such an important text, that is, verses 36 to 45, because they tie all of this together. And yet also, we're preceding all of it, which is truly fascinating. We've also, that was all last week, we've previously connected Revelation 6 to 8, Revelation 12, 13, 14, 16 to 18, and 19, and 20. So through our study, we have covered a majority of the book of Revelation. And all of this pointing to Christ, the big idea of Scripture, the, the meta-narrative The overarching theme of the Bible is God's glory revealed through Christ's redemption. And that through Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. And that continues today in our text, which I've titled, Your Required Resolve. Your Required Resolve. Further culmination of Christ and a direct application of Scripture that brings forth the reality of that title, which is your required resolve. And in that, uh, as we look at this, our application is where our theme comes from. And that theme that you have there in your outline, in your prayer guide, four end times facets that demand your proclamation of Christ. Four end times facets that demand your proclamation of Christ. And each of our verses tonight is one point per your outlines. And so our first point is the first verse, and I've titled it, The Concluding Conflict. The Concluding Conflict. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, be good if I got there. Sorry, I'm changing pages on you. Verse 1 of chapter 12, follow along. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. The verse begins now at that time. This directly ties us back to the previous section of chapter 11 and verses 36 to 45. And the Antichrist and specifically the end time. That end time which was indicated as future in verse 35. It was indicated as during the present narrative in verse 40, and is now present. And that end time, as we discussed at length, is specifically the Great Tribulation. And you can go back and refresh yourself on those details. And I had one of my dear, dear friends from Mobile, Alabama, and you know who you are, giving me a little ribbing about reminding ourselves of that. And uh, who I love dearly and wish we could be with her and her husband at all times. And so, but you can look back and identify that this end time that we've spoken about is the beginning of the great tribulation. Specifically from verse 40 and forward, when we get into now in this time, the present time, it is the beginning of the great tribulation. And that which we see moving forward at the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation, at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. And then we're reintroduced to Michael, the one previously described in Daniel 10.13 and Daniel 10.21. He is described in Daniel 10.21 as your prince meaning that he is Daniel's prince. He is the prince of the people of Israel, not literally Daniel's caretaker and Daniel only, but the one who is watching over the children of Israel. 
And so Daniel has that specific role and identity that is a, a special emissary to Israel through their captivity and through the time of the Gentiles. Very important to recognize these time frames that are being identified. When we look at verse 1, it says, A time of distress, and we'll get to this phrase, such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Again, that time is the end time. That time is the great tribulation. And all the way since they became a nation. When was that? When did Israel become a nation? That is a good answer, legally, yes, May 14th, 1945. But they became a nation when God brought the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, who would then have a son of promise, not for another 25 years until he was well past the age, and not until that son gave birth to his son Jacob, who then would become the father of the 12 tribes. But it began informally with the proclamation of the Abrahamic covenant uh, somewhere around 2250 BC. So now we are talking about a time period that has run from the Abrahamic covenant to the middle of the great tribulation approaching 4,500 years. And this is the greatest time. And Daniel is the one throughout their captivity which began in, as you all know from our charts that we have passed out before, 586 B.C., when Israel was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar for the final third captivity of three. And from that time of captivity forward, Michael has been identified as the one who is taking care of Israel during this time of the Gentiles. And he's described in verse 1 as standing guard over the sons of your people. Again, a further expression of his role guarding Israel and his protecting action. Which, by the way, the protective action over Israel by God is described in three key places in Scripture. In Isaiah 26 and verses 20 to 21... Isaiah 26, 20 to 21. Jeremiah 37, time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah 37. And also in Matthew chapter 24, 21, as Dr. MacArthur notes. The verb here in verse 1, will arise, is used in the same fashion that it does in two other places in Scripture. Isaiah 50, verse 8. Isaiah 58 and 2 Kings 18, 28. And it describes an action of confrontation. It describes an action of military force. This is likely the angelic battle in Revelation 12, 12 to 17 that we've previously discussed. That is ongoing here. When Daniel arises. It's at the end time. It's at the great tribulation. And it is at this point. That Revelation 12. 12 to 17. Describes that angelic battle. That we looked at back in Daniel chapter 10. And we see that in the middle of verse 1. Where it says. And there will be a time of distress. Such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And the Jewish people had had many difficult times. They have had many difficult times to date. In our modern era and the things that have gone on through Hitler and others who have sought to exterminate the Jews, which brought forward the formalization of Israel May 14th, 1945. Pardon? 14th, thank you. 48. There we go. And bless you. Um, I'll get my hearing aids adjusted soon. Or get some. So the Jewish people had had many difficult times. And the, the, this will be the greatest. And this is exactly what Jesus' words tell us in Matthew 24, 21. And it's interesting that Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 21 are almost identical to Daniel 12, 1. I wasn't going to, but I think we need to read them. So I'm going to go to Matthew 24 
and read you verse 21 so that you can see the parallel. For there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That quote that we see in Matthew 24, 21 is from the Septuagint and is almost identical to the Septuagint version of Daniel 12, 1. So the, clearly when Jesus was speaking about that, he had in mind this text in Daniel 12, 1. Tanner notes that this time of distress and the great tribulation is also referenced in three other texts. One I've mentioned, Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, Jacob's distress. Also, very interestingly, I found as in my study, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, all the way back to the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 25 to 31, and then the third location in Zechariah 13 and verses 7 to 9. But there is a purpose in this, as there is, beloved, in absolutely everything that God does. And in this case, the purpose is to bring Israel to himself, just as we see in Zechariah 12.10. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, we read, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Exactly the, po- the focus of God to bring Israel to himself. We see the same thing amazingly in Jesus' words uttered this day on the Passion Week as revealed to us in Matthew 23 and verse 37 to 39. Matthew 23 and verse 37 to 39 read, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole plan of God has been to bring those whom he has chosen to himself. And this redemptive purpose is what closes verse 1. Where it says, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Notice that the verb is passive. Will be rescued. Israel doesn't rescue herself, nor do any of us. God does. This is the the same word and the same eschatological deliverance that we see in Joel 2.32. And notice how many pieces of scripture we're connecting here. This is the national deliverance of Israel as reworded in Zechariah 12-14 which occurs at the brink of her national annihilation. That's specifically per Zechariah 14 and verses 2 to 4. As one commentator notes, and exactly what Romans eleven twenty-five to 27 speaks about. Here we have this amazing connectivity and again, right at the last possible second. You know, I've often heard, you know, I've at times in my life, and we have all been at those, uh, uh, those, those transition points, those points of decision where we're seeking the Lord and wanting to know what his will was for our lives. And, and, and I remember we were in Haley, we were getting ready to sell our house and nothing was happening. And uh, we're like, uh, Karen and I sat in the front room one day and said, well, I I don't know what happened, but I guess we missed this call on our lives. And one of the men that I have still is at the church in Haley, who I uh, connect with often, uh, said to me, you know, the Lord is rarely early but never late. 
And it is so true. And this is so also it was here. This is the midpoint of the end of times. This is the midpoint, the beginning of the great tribulation. This is where Satan has revealed himself. He has broken the treaty through Antichrist that Antichrist made. He, Antichrist has proclaimed himself as God and has showed himself a liar and a false Messiah and now brings everything he's got against Israel. And this is just what Zechariah 14, 2 to 4 speak about. And again, fulfillment of Romans eleven twenty five. And as verse 1 shows us, this is not every single person, but it is those written in the book. This is the book of life. Several references in Scripture speak about this. I'm sure you're familiar with those in Revelation. Revelation 3, 5. Revelation 20 and verse 1. Revelation, uh, excuse me, 20 and 12, not 1. 20 and 12 and 20 and 15. But we also see it in six other places. In Exodus 32, 32. The book of life. Psalm 69, 28. In Isaiah 4, 3. In Luke 10, 20. And in Philippians 4, 3. All these places reference this same aspect which is the book of life and it is this proclamation by those who are the chosen. And per Revelation 20.15, everyone not written in the book is thrown alive into the lake of fire. The reason our point is called a concluding conflict is because this is the end of Israel's conflict with God and with Christ. But this is also the first end times facet that demands your proclamation of Christ. Because everyone who doesn't respond will be thrown alive at their resurrection into the lake of fire. They're not going to be annihilated. They're not going to go away to nothing. They're going to live for eternal damnation and condemnation. There are a lot of people who have wronged us. There's the guy who about tore my front bumper off on the way to church tonight. We don't want any of them going alive into the lake of fire. And thus we must be those who are proclaiming Christ because that is the only solution. And this leads to our second point in verse 2, the confirming consummation. The confirming consummation. Verse 2 reads, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is exactly the same text that we see or the same implication in John chapter 5 and verse 26 to 29. John 5, 26 to 29 reads in parallel to this, Jesus answered and said to them, that's chapter 6, John 5, 29 Uh, I'm going to go to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Excuse me, verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we have this time where Christ, who has been appointed the judge, who has been given all authority, has proclaimed to us, just as Daniel did in Daniel 12 too, that there is surely a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Eternal life is for every person on earth. Some to everlasting glory. Some to everlasting condemnation. Sleep is referenced, of course, as a euphemism to death, as the New Testament repeats frequently. And the term alludes to the temporary nature of sleep from which we'll awake, 
a verb that also occurs in our text in Daniel 12 too, because that's exactly what happens. Those that die and sleep will awake to an eternal existence. The righteous to an eternal existence with glory and God and the wicked to an eternal condemnation. That resurrection, that awaking is not to be confused with conscious existence. It's also not to be confused with the errant doctrine of the Unitarians and the Catholics where they believe that there is a waiting period or for the Unitarians that when we die and if we are put into a grave that there our soul also goes and sleeps until such time as it is awakened. That's contrary to scripture. For the believer, the moment that he passes... He exhales his final breath on earth to inhale in the presence of God. And so also, for the unbeliever, they exhale their final breath on this earth to inhale in their beginning of torment and condemnation. The waking, the sleeping and the waking referenced here is the bodily resurrection that's being spoken about. And so we have to be clear on those terms and understand what's being spoken about. It's fascinating, as a commentator Gardner notes, to see that Daniel 12, 2 is a picture, and note this carefully, of the reversal of Genesis 3.19 and the curse, where it says in Genesis 3.19, 319, Um, let me get that, I didn't mark that, but I want to read that for you. In Genesis 3 and 19, where we have the curse and God indicating what will happen as a result of the curse and death. And it says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you are taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The same words from Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 of dust and ground are the identical Hebrew words of dust and earth in Genesis 3.19. The curse that will result in all people dying is being reversed in the resurrection where all will arise from the dust of the ground. And this is an incredible conception to understand. And this reversal that is taking place. The statement in verse 2 affirms the resurrection of all mankind. And the context speaks of the resurrection of Israel. Which we see specifically described in Revelation 20 and verses 4 to 6. Revelation 20, 4 to 6 speaks of the specific resurrection of righteous Israel. That is not the only resurrection, as we'll see, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But that text in Revelation 24 to 6 talks about Israel's resurrection. But verse 2, again, is not a complete discussion of all resurrections and the specifics therein. Because there is also the resurrection of the church, which happens at the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 In verses 13 to 18. And not only in that location. But there is the resurrection of the wicked. In Revelation 20. And verse 11 to 14. Revelation 20. 11 to 14. Where we have the great white throne judgment. At the end of the millennium. Where not only are the wicked resurrected. And taken from their conscience existence in soul and spirit, in a point of turmoil from their death, to then be reunited with bodies that are created to be eternally tormented in fire and with the eating of worms, as Jesus tells us. But so also at that same point are the righteous who have come through the tribulation resurrected. So there are Really four separate resurrections that are spoken about. And this doesn't talk about the nuances 
it's just referencing specifically Israel's resurrection, but that in general, all people are resurrected. So this is the confirming consummation, that in the end, all will be raised, some to glory and others to perdition. And again, the second point of your required time to proclaim Christ If all are going to end up in that state who do not accept Christ, how focused and motivated must we be to speak to others about Jesus? It is so important. This takes us to our third point, which I've titled, The Conscientious Champions. The Conscientious Champions in verse 3, which reads, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The ones who have insight in verse 3 are those who possess saving faith such that they lead many to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is why we're here. This is the one job as I often say, that we will not do in heaven. The only thing we can do better on earth as Christians than we will do in heaven is to proclaim Christ, to seek, to have Him through His Spirit save those whom He would bring to Himself. And this is exactly what verse 3 is speaking about. The same Hebrew stem for this word that we see in verse 3, insight, is that used in Daniel 9.22, describing the insight that the angel Gabriel gives to Daniel. And in Daniel 11.33, we see the same Hebrew root used of the wise ones, those with insight. And those who during the Maccabean revolt, during the time of Antiochus IV Epiphany and his tyranny and abomination, brought insight to those who would be the righteous. And the context of the end times in the Great Tribulation is surely referencing in this text the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that we see spoken about in Revelation chapter 7 in verse 4, and in Revelation 14. So, our context tells us this is the end time, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. It is specifically about the nation of Israel. And here we have that 144,000 who are coming to life, who are those that are pure and holy and are righteous. And there are more than them, but those specific ones and those to whom they who have insight will share the truth and bring many others to righteousness. And the result of their turning many into Christ is so that they are like stars. So that they are like stars eternally. And it is that with insight that will shine like the stars of the heaven. The shining brightly here is like is spoken to us as being like the expanse of heaven. It's, it's a glorious illumination of all eternity, for which the work that they have done, which God has ordained as he ordains all the good works that we do, that we would walk in them, Ephesians 2.10, that as they do those works and God blesses them for that work, they are elevated in that effort and they shine brightly as the stars of the heaven. They they are given their eternal reward for the faithful work of kingdom proclamation as they share Christ and as they guide men to him. This is exactly what Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 3.8 where he talks about those things which we do which are of wood, stubble, and hay will be burnt up but the everlasting things will continue and it is for those which we will be rewarded. This is exactly what Jesus references in Matthew 13, 43. And he says there in Matthew 13 and 43 the following. Then the righteous 
will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And like stars, there are greater and lesser shinings. And here is a result of greater faithfulness in proclaiming Christ. So the question arises regarding your proclamation of Christ. Where are you if you're not doing so? It's not something that is required for salvation because there are no works that are required for salvation per Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's through faith that we have been saved. It is a gift of God, not works, so that none of us may boast. But nonetheless, there are those works that God has called us to that we are to be obediently participating in. And if you're not participating, where are you? When was the last time that you shared Christ? When was the last time that you spoke to someone you knew or were thought to be an unbeliever the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? John 15 tells us that good trees bring forth good fruit and that bad trees produce bad fruit and that the good cannot produce bad and the bad cannot produce good. So where are we? Is there any better fruit that we can produce? than helping to bring disciples to Christ? I think not. I think not. The concluding conflict, the confirming consummation, the conscientious conscientious champions, and our fourth point, the closing consideration. The closing consideration. Look at verse 4 of Daniel chapter 12 with me. Daniel 12 and verse 4. But as for you, Daniel... Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. What is this all about? Sealing and concealing and back and forth and increasing knowledge. Well, first Daniel is commanded to conceal or to shut the words and to seal up the book. Tanner notes that the command to conceal the words relates to the final prophecy of Daniel chapter 10 to 12, this final work. And that the sealing up of the book, or the scroll as it is referred to, is all of the book of Daniel. So there is a local application per this prophecy, which are these words, and he connects us back to the use of this same phrase, this Hebrew phrase for words, throughout the beginning of chapter 10 and the end and the beginning of 11, and then also to the whole book. And what's fascinating about that understanding is that that is the the same application that we see in Revelation 22 particularly where the book of Revelation is in mind and it directly indicated from a a secondary perspective to all of Scripture. In Revelation 22 and verse 10, John is told by the angel, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book. And in verses 18 and 19 of Revelation 22, he regards the adding to or the taking away from the words of the book. It is specifically referencing the prophecy of the book, which is Revelation, but it is the whole Bible. We must not add to nor take away. So the same aspects are revealed here. And the sealing up and concealing mean to hide or keep from being known. Thus, The meaning of these words, and hear me carefully, the meaning of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 10 to 12 will not be fully known until the end of time. And as we've discussed over and over this evening, when is the end of time? The beginning of the great tribulation. The identical Hebrew phrase used in Daniel 11.35 and the same connotation in Daniel 11.40. So this will be sealed up and not fully known until Antichrist's actions occur. 
And until that time, we won't fully understand what's being spoken about. But that doesn't mean that there will be no knowledge of this. And that's what the next phrase, many will go back and forth, is all about. This means many people will go about trying to gain greater and greater understanding. That's that phrase back and forth. It's a Hebrew idiom. And it means that they will search. They will be going back and forth and looking. And the result of that is that, as verse 4 tells us at the end, knowledge will increase. As the progress of revelation occurred, the prophet Zechariah would write around 50 years later. How many times have we referenced him? Much more illumination and detail. Further, a hundred years or so later, Malachi would write, giving us yet more detail. Then the events of the kingdom of Greece would occur, and we'd get more understanding. We'd see the incredible accuracy of verses 5 to 35. And then the first advent of minist- and ministry of Jesus would come, and we would have his teachings And then we would have the writings of Paul and of Peter and of the Apostle John and specifically the book of Revelation. And continually there would be more illumination and more knowledge. And all along that knowledge is increasing. But full understanding and revelation will be sealed and concealed until the time of the great tribulation. There is yet still more that scripture tells us that will not be known until that time. In this closing consideration of our fourth point, this prophecy is sealed. Yet, again, greater illumination of it was happening and and is still happening today. We are still learning. We are still understanding. I'm still growing every time I open this book and I'm amazed to recognize what God is showing us and the interconnectivity all the way from the Pentateuch to Revelation. All of it tying to the book of Daniel. Fascinating to recognize. And what of you, my beloved brothers and sisters? This is your required resolve. Perhaps this is that clarion call in your life. If you're hearing these words and don't know Christ, here or with us online, now is the time. Now is the time in your life Because each one will be resurrected. Each one, everyone on this earth lives eternally. Every child that is aborted in the womb will live eternally. Every child who is killed before they can make a profession of faith will live eternally. Every person, either in the resurrection of eternal life and glory, or in a resurrection of condemnation and judgment So, has life been hard? Have you or or are you struggling or suffering? If you don't know Christ, the struggling and the suffering on this earth are the best it will ever get for you. Because when your life on this earth ends, you will spend an eternity in judgment and misery and condemnation that you cannot imagine. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that suffering and that struggling is the worst it ever gets. Because from here, it is a glorious eternity in Christ's presence, away from sin, away from tears, away from all of the struggles of this sin-cursed earth. And if you're hearing me as a believer, then you realize that these verses mandate that you proclaim Christ. As does 2 Timothy 4, 5, where at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he writes, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Are you fulfilling your ministry? Are you fulfilling why Christ brought you to himself? That is, to do the work of an evangelist to proclaim Christ. Tanner concludes our section with this wonderful note that I wanted to read to you. There are multitudes of people 
in every age who walk in darkness, who don't perceive the spiritual realities around them, and who consequently are living in the consequences of their darkened minds. Yet some can be reached for Christ, can be changed by the Holy Spirit, and can go on to walk in newness of life. This verse is essentially a call for those who do understand, who have their eyes opened, who have acquired spiritual understanding, to have compassion on those who have not yet been so blessed. To care about those who are lost and to reach out to them in hope of seeing them to come to faith in Christ and to go, to go on to live as a new creation is what God delights to see happen. Those who do so can be assured of His favor and enjoying rich spiritual rewards forever and ever. Don't miss it, beloved. Whether a believer and especially as an unbeliever, it's far, far too great a joy to miss. Father, we praise you for the gift that you have given us in your word. We praise you for the gift of your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who this word and every word proclaims with the greatest power so that we would be encouraged, Lord, that we too have that power. We have your spirit living in us. We have the truth of your word. Strengthen us, Father. Help us to move past the weakness of our flesh and of our sin, that we would stand firm and that we would proclaim with great joy the tidings of good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to bear our sins, to suffer all that we deserved and to be shamed and to hang on a cross so that we might have life. Father, what great news is this? We praise you for that. We praise you for your great love. Strengthen us for that which you've called us to and we'll give you thanks because we know it's all your work. Thank you for calling us to it. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.